Welcome to the Wisdom of the Womb podcast, your home for mind, body, and soul wellness for women. My name is Stephanie Adler. I'm a certified nutrition consultant, birth doula, and women's hormone and fertility expert. I've supported hundreds of women in having healthy cycles, healthy babies, and building a balanced foundation in their bodies and minds to set them up for a limitless life. Now it's your turn. I believe a woman reaches her full potential when she trusts the innate wisdom of her body and that those women change the world. So if you're wanting to achieve hormone harmony, have boundless energy, optimize your fertility, live a holistically healthy life, and learn how to love and trust your body to become the well woman you know you are meant to be, you're in the right place. Join me for weekly wisdom on topics such as holistic hormone and gut health, fertility, mindfulness, birth, pregnancy, and beyond, and leave with actionable steps towards well womanhood. Thanks for pressing play today. I'm so excited for the magic we're going to create together. Let's dive in. Hi, friends. I am so excited about this episode because today I get to highlight my second professional love, which is birth and pregnancy. If you didn't know... In 2018, I completed a birth doula certification and practiced as a volunteer doula where I lived, which was San Francisco at the time, until mid-2019. And then I ended up moving to LA. And like while I was trying to figure out the volunteer doula scene there, uh, COVID hit. And so I haven't been practicing in person since then, but do a lot of virtual doula support for clients who I help get pregnant and just absolutely have been bit by the birth bug and love talking about the birth and pregnancy space. And, you know, it's really interesting because at first I thought I was drawn to the birth space because I loved learning everything about making babies. So I wanted to learn more about bringing them into this world, but The deeper I got into my learnings and my training, I realized that it was actually so much deeper than that. Birth and the way that it has been medicalized in much of the Western world, um, speaking primarily about Canada and the United States right now, because there are a lot of Western, like what we would consider Western or developed countries that actually have not medicalized birth. But in North America, birth has been so medicalized. And the way that it has been medicalized has largely taken the power away from birthing mothers. And this process reflects what I believe has happened with nutrition and women's health as well in this society, because modern society in all of these systems, birth, nutrition, women's healthcare has told women that they're not the experts of their own bodies, subtly and not so subtly, and that we are not able to successfully be responsible for our own care and our own health. And society says that our intuition is wrong and to defer to an authority figure, whether they are in a white coat or a government agency like the FDA and to ignore or forget the traditional wisdom that had guided women in health birth as they feed their families 
and it goes on for generations. And this narrative is so reinforced through popular media and through word of mouth that it seeps into the consciousness of the collective and has wormed its way into all aspects of nutrition, healthcare, and even birth care so much that it's become the normalized way of doing things. So when I first went to school for nutrition, it was to challenge the way things were being done to be a disruptor. I knew that there was a better way, but couldn't understand why the average woman I was interacting with at, you know, the internship that I was doing, or that I met at a networking event, like didn't see it, how American society wasn't putting it together that every other commercial on TV was for a pharmaceutical while the other alternate commercial was for if not fast food, then another type of food that still did not serve the human body. And then when I was in school and fell in love with the magic that is the female body, but was so sickened by the lie I'd been sold on hormonal birth control and hormone balance in general, I similarly wanted to disrupt that system. And to help women find another way, a way that allowed them to become their own healer and to learn how to trust themselves through trusting their body and knowing how to create a harmonious hormonal system by returning to an intuitive and aligned way of nourishing themselves. And the pregnant birth and postpartum care in North America is also due for a disruption, a disrupt disruption. Why is that word so hard for me right now is due for a disruption overdue for a disruption. And over the years, this has been a passion of mine that I have been less publicly vocal about, unless you're like my husband or my best friends, then you hear me exhaust this topic endlessly because I am so passionate about it. But as far as, you know, sharing on a more public setting. It's something I haven't spoken about as much, but now I'm feeling more called to incorporate this knowledge into my public work as it one overall aligns with my desire for the world to become a place where a modern woman can truly thrive. And not only in a traditional feminist, like girl boss, burn my bra kind of way, but in a deep, like live their aligned truth, not suffer from birth or medical trauma, and then watch what becomes possible when I operate from a place of trust in my feminine type of way. Um, and also too, just, you know, as I am personally going through this experience, instead of having just guided other women and witnessed other women through this process, it's given me even more perspective and it, it makes it feel more, uh, in my, in my alignment to share. So today we're aiming to do just that. And I'm going to speak about one to start off how to pick your pregnancy birth care provider by deciding on what type of experience you desire in all stages of a pregnancy journey, prenatal birth and postpartum care, um, and what questions you should be asking yourself to get clarity on that. We'll also talk about what the different types of care are, like what options do you have, um, what the vibe will be like for those different options, including the length of prenatal appointments and their, you know, that birth provider or that pregnancy care provider's philosophy 
Does your insurance typically cover it? Things like that. We'll also talk about questions that you can be asking these care providers during an interview process to understand if they are right for you. We're going to talk a little bit about why you should be thinking about all of this before you're pregnant. Um, if you're already pregnant and you're listening to this podcast, don't fret. Like there's never, it's never too late to be thinking about this, but also as someone who has been thinking about, you know, these things for years, I'm so grateful to have had that experience. And if you are listening to this and manifesting a pregnancy, it's a great place to be. Um, we're also going to talk about what prenatal testing is available, um, why you might want to do it and why you might want to abstain. You know, I'm going to be providing a lot of facts here and there's, this is such a knowledge rich episode. And then we're going to go into a personal dive of what my partner and I decided to do for our care with this pregnancy and why my husband and I felt this was right for us. And so this entire podcast is so valuable and so important. And I highly recommend you listen all the way to the end where I speak to my experiences and choices because the why and the how are almost more important than what the decision you end up making is. And I know for myself, the best way to see that is through example is to like really see how someone comes to the conclusions of the decision that they made and like why and how they got there. So I really hope that uh, me sharing a little insight into why and how we chose what we chose for our pregnancy and birth experience thus far, thus far at the time of this recording, we're more than halfway through, um, was right for us, will really support you in your journey. And a reminder that this is not medical advice. I am simply sharing information and encourage you to take radical responsibility for your own care and preconception, prenatal care and beyond. And additionally, to note that I do respect everyone's right to make choices that they feel empowered about for themselves during pregnancy and birth. It's even if, especially if those decisions are different than mine. So let's jump in. First. How do we pick a pregnancy care provider by deciding on what type of experience you desire to have during all stages of your pregnancy journey? This is not just what kind of birth experience you want, but what kind of prenatal care experience you want, and also what type of postpartum care you desire, um, and what questions you can ask your providers during interviews to get more clarity on if that is the right experience for you and the right provider for you. So... This is a question that I ask all the mamas that I work with who get pregnant while working with me is how do they want to feel in relation to their care? This will typically lead to more questions like what do they want their prenatal appointments to look and to feel like? How important is having a connection, like a personal connection with their care provider to them? Do they want to feel like they're friends? Do you, they want a high chance of knowing the people who will be attending their birth? Is continuity of that care during the day or days of a birth experience, because birth can go for more than 24 hours, important to you, right? Is no is having the same care providers throughout your entire birth experience important to you? Who do you, they want in the room and why? What is the feeling of the space you imagine giving birth in? It's often said that the environment that got the baby in is the best environment for getting the baby out. 
So think about what kind of safety and intimacy and what mood that sparks for you when you think about that, right? When you think about the environment that it took to make the baby, what kind of environment do you want for the baby for you to feel safe and for you to feel that sense of intimacy to allow the baby to come out? How do you want to be able to contact your care providers? Do you want to be able to text them and ask, or do you want to do you feel fine with asking them a question through a portal and, you know, waiting a couple of days for a response? Do you want to call the office and speak to a nurse? What does respect with a care provider feel like to you? How do, how do you want to feel in terms of res- them respecting you? Do you want decisions to be made collectively or imposed on you? Do you want to be able to eat during birth? What do you imagine wearing and how does that feel? What's your relationship with pain and discomfort? How do you inherently view birth? What type of care postpartum feels like a deep breath to you? Just like a exhale that would feel so good. And these are all the questions that you need to ask yourself before you even get to the phase where you're asking care providers questions, because you getting clarity on what you want your experience to look and feel like informs who you should even be interviewing and why. And if your answer to these questions that I said above are, I don't know, you're not alone. So many women don't think about this until they're pregnant. And then, you know, things are already happening. And so they're just doing what their friend did with the provider that their friend recommended. And you're swept into what is their standard of care without even asking yourself, what do I want? What will feel good to me? So it's time, whether you're four weeks pregnant, 30 weeks pregnant, or two years before you're planning on even trying to get pregnant to start dreaming. What's your perfect birth feel like to you? And as much as possible, when you feel or see something come in, like that comes from a movie or comes from a story you heard about someone else's birth, try and release it. Go inward and connect with the feeling state that you desire. Do you desire to feel strong? Do you want to feel like you're in the driver's seat? Do you want to feel seen? Do you want to feel validated, loved, or cared for? What do you want to feel during your pregnancy, during your birth, and after you've birthed your baby from your care providers? Take a moment and capture that snapshot or rewind this podcast and ask yourself some of the questions that I asked above. No shame in going back and playing through that again and being like, okay, let me think about some of these. Because as we go through the next part of this, which is the different types of care, we're going to do it based on location and birth provider or location of your birth and the provider that would be attending it. It will give you a sense of if a location or a type of care provider is the right fit for you based on what some of the answers to those questions were above. So, and if you want to listen to this next part first and then go back and answer some of that questions, that would be a beautiful way to do that as well. So I'm going to go into detail about the different types of care that is available to pregnant people and what the vibe will likely be. 
We're going to talk about things like the length of prenatal appointments, the, the providers' philosophies, etc. I want to name, of course, this is a generalization, and there will be care providers who do not fit the mold for their, you know, type of provider they are for the location that they practice at. But generally speaking, through my own personal experience in the birth space, through, through witnessing clients through the birth space, through being in communities with other birth workers, this is generally the case. So let's start with what approximately 98% of the United States population does, which is to go with a care provider that is an OBGYN or a certified nurse midwife giving birth in a hospital. Now, I am going to put nurse midwives and OBGYNs in the same category as far as giving birth in a hospital, but I will break down the difference between the two. The reason I am combining them is twofold. Midwives who support birth in an exclusive hospital setting are called CNMs, certified nurse midwives. A client turned friend of mine shout out to you, my love, you know who you are, is a certified nurse midwife who practices in a home birthing practice, but was trained as a CNM to, you know, provide care inside a hospital setting. And she often shares that CNM certified nurse midwives are more similar to OBGYNs in care in terms of the type of care they provide as they're bound by hospital policies and are used to seeing medicalized hospital births. I've personally witnessed this in assisting births inside hospitals. I've seen some of the midwives be even a little bit more medically minded than even some of the doctors in those spaces. Um, just it has to do with their training and the way that they oftentimes see birth. Again, this is not fully exclusive, but mostly what I've seen and what I've experienced from talking to friends and who are birth workers. And so while they are different than OBGYNs, these certified nurse midwives, and they're not trained surgeons, and also the prenatal care might be slightly more common, like more in, in alignment with traditional midwifery care. Overall, I found that certified nurse midwives are more similar to OBGYNs. And so let's talk a little bit more about what is a certified nurse midwife. They are advanced practice nurses, and they usually work, as we mentioned, in hospitals, though they can also work in birth centers. And in some states, they can work at home if they have their own practice. So I know, for example, uh, Virginia is one of those states. They are trained inside the medical system, and where they work typically dictates how they view birth. And so... A brief description of OBGYNs, you know, this is your gynecologist, they are medical doctors and trained surgeons, which can be super helpful in a high-risk pregnancy or in an actual emergency. However, their experience often leads to more interventions in low-risk pregnancies as well. And so most OBs have a very medicalized view of birth. They see birth as something to save a woman from, and is very likely that they have never seen an out of hospital birth or a birth with no interventions whatsoever. Um, OBGYNs are typically routinely taught to intervene with birth, to make birth safer. That is their approach. That is how they were trained. And they have a high rate of malpractice 
overall, as far as doctors go. And so they will typically strictly follow hospital policies to avoid being sued at all costs. Like it is hundred percent, we are following the hospital policy so that they can say they have done everything by the book. Uh, in a hospital birth setting with either an OBGYN or a certified nurse midwife, Oftentimes I will recur, occur, I will refer to certified nurse midwives or midwives who are practicing in hospitals as medwives because of their medical view of birth. So if you ever hear me say medwives in this episode, that is what I'm referring to. Um, providers, so in a hospital birth setting, providers, whether it's a CNM or an OBGYN, are likely to feel like they are the ones exclusively in charge. Okay, hospitals have a liability requirement that limit the amount of time the providers are supposed to allow, I'm doing little air quotes around the word, supposed to and allow uh, a woman to be in labor or need to progress in a certain period of time, progress in terms of like more dilation um, in their cervix in order to maintain what they're doing before the hospital practitioners feel like they need to intervene. Um, they also in a hospital setting, these, uh, practitioners may require again, little air quotes around the word require certain types of monitoring that will typically lead to more intervention. This might be continuous monitoring or internal monitoring, et cetera. And so appointments, let's talk a little bit more about the prenatal care right now. So the appointments with OBGYNs are an average across the country of the United States, seven minutes with the main provider. They're typically a slightly longer with a CNM, a certified nurse midwife, and the flow of the appointment is usually to be called into the room after you've peed in a cup and been weighed and a nurse or a tech will take your blood pressure and ask you a few questions before you wait for your doctor who will come in and maybe want to do an ultrasound to hear the heartbeat, or they'll maybe measure your fundal height. Uh, if you choose to decline a procedure or a test or you choose like to say, Hey, I don't want to do this ultrasound today. For example, they will typically not allow it again, air quotes around the word allow, um, and will get defensive and offer a lot of pushback and can even threaten to refuse care. And so when I say allow it, so I think that this is a really, and the reason I put air quotes around that, I think this is an important thing to mention that like no one can allow you to do anything during your birth or pregnancy experience, but a lot of times being around a doctor and an authority can make us feel that way. They can threaten to refuse care or deny you care, which would technically then like not allow you to remain in their care if you don't do this thing. And this actually did happen to me a little bit, and I'm going to share more about that in a second. Um, but, you know, whenever, if a, if a practitioner says like, we do not allow whatever, like, just remember you have full freedom to choose whatever you desire. Um, and a care provider can't allow you to do something or not. And so I actually had a really interesting experience and this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm just going to tease it in here, uh, because it's very relevant to this element. When we were living in Atlanta, we, knew uh, that we would be moving to Colorado, you know, right around the beginning of my second trimester. And most midwifery practices that practice in a home birth setting, it's a global fee. Like you don't pay per appointment, you pay like for your entire care. And so we didn't want to sign up with a midwife in, 
Atlanta, um, knowing, you know, like and pay for an entire pregnancy and birth experience when we were also going to do the same thing in Colorado. So we were actively seeking a midwife in Colorado, but in the meantime, I didn't have an OBGYN at all. Um, I personally didn't feel like I needed to have an OBGYN that I regularly saw. And so when I got pregnant, I didn't have someone who, you know, I could immediately go to. And when you aren't established with a practitioner, it can take up to a month to get in to see someone. And, um, because we knew we didn't want to have a midwife in Atlanta for that reason, I just in case like we needed a care provider thought it would be wise for me to establish care with someone. Once I found out I was pregnant just for like those 10 weeks, you know, I'd go in, I could pay a copay, et cetera, just to see someone that one time and have like established care. And so I went and I saw this doctor who I found her by searching for integrative OBGYNs, you know, in the Atlanta area. And her practice was called like integrative healthcare for women, et cetera, something like that. And I went in, had a classic appointment, exactly like what I just shared with you, pee in the cup, someone else weighed me, someone else took my blood pressure. The doctor came in, spoke to us for less than five minutes and basically told me, you know, next steps will be, you need to have an, a, a midwife, uh, an ultrasound at approximately eight weeks and approximately 10 weeks, et cetera. And I knew that I wasn't going to continue seeing this woman. It was only just like a, a just in case backup, you know, if I needed anything in my first trimester type of relationship on my end. So I didn't feel like arguing with her and I was just like, okay, whatever. So when we go to the front desk, they book me for the ultrasounds. I'm like, I'm just going to call and cancel them. I'll explain more about that later on in this episode. And I don't think that much about it. And I go to call and cancel the ultrasound that was coming up. And the woman at the front desk, when I say, Hey, I'm calling to cancel the ultrasound. She goes, Oh, just so you no longer want to be having care with us. And I said, no, I still want to like have you as my care provider right now. Uh, I just want to opt out of the ultrasound. And she told me that like, that wasn't allowed like that. I would be denied care if I did not want to do this ultrasound. And we're going to talk more about ultrasounds a little bit later when we talk about, uh, prenatal testing and like why you might want to opt in or opt out of an ultrasound and how many you might want to do, et cetera. But it was just so fascinating to me. Like I had heard stories like this, but didn't really, not that I didn't believe them. Of course I believed them. I believe women when they tell me stories about their healthcare, but it was just like shocking for me to hear that this doctor was going to deny me care because I didn't want an early, you know, eight or 10 week ultrasound. I can't remember which one it was. Um, so I must've been the earlier one because we didn't do any of them, but so anyways, really interesting. They might, you know, and that's a, a good example of this was like an integrative OBGYN, but of what happened in that circumstance. And I ended up just being like, okay, fine. You can deny me care. I'm moving in a few weeks anyways. And I didn't really didn't bother me, but Anyways, back to giving birth in a hospital and the type of care that you might receive with in the CNM or an OBGYN. So on the day of your birth, you may or may not know the attending midwife or doctor. It depends who is on call. So the way that most of these midwifery practices or OBGYN practices work is there are several doctors on call um, or several midwives on call, and you may or may not 
have a relationship with the person who is attending that day. Sometimes practices will have you book your appointments with all of the doctors or the midwives in the practice. So you have a better chance of knowing the attending on call. This will sometimes mean seeing six plus different doctors or midwives over the course of your care though, um, and not really having a relationship with any of them. You know, if you see some of them one time, you see some of them two times, it's not quite the same typically as seeing the same person for eight months or nine months. Um, but then you also could potentially risk, you know, if you do see the same provider, the whole pregnancy to only have a stranger be there on the day of your birth, if that is not the person who's on call that day. Um, and then also th the element of this being in a hospital also comes with a lack of co continuity of care, not only with the attending midwife or doctor, but nurses as well, because, you know, on-call shifts change. And so something that most people don't realize about hospital births is that the nurses will be present with you way more than any midwife or doctor. The nurses are going to be there with you so much more. However, <laughs> all of these providers are subject to change when the shift changes. So you could like really love the nurses that you're with for the first five hours of labor and then have them go home and new nurses come in right when you're ready to start pushing or go into transition. And you haven't built that trust with these new providers and these new nurses yet. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me that when her son was born, it was right around the time of the shift change. And so both sets of nurses were there. And that made like, you know, because the, the nurses who had been with her for the last 12 hours wanted to like kind of see it through, but then they needed to transition it over to the new nurses. So the new nurses were also in the room and it ended up that there were 10 additional people there present in her room when she was giving birth, which was not exactly what she was imagining. Um, and so these are just things to think about. And again, I just want to reiterate for a lot of people being in a hospital setting is going to be where they feel the safest for whatever reason. And if that reason is exclusively because of media and movies that you've seen or horror stories that you've heard, I do think it is valuable to just educate more because a lot of times we'll talk about this a little bit later on too, but a lot of times we're not getting a full story or a full picture there. But, you know, if there are people who either had a previous experience where like, you know, a NICU was something that someone in their family needed. And, you know, the thing that they needed to feel safe and like they could let go to give birth was knowing that there was a NICU down the hall. That's beautiful. I think it's just important to be really educated on what these experiences are going to look like because a lot of people are end up being surprised. So let's briefly talk about how much a hospital birth with a certified nurse midwife or an OBGYN um, can cost. And so it's more likely this type of birth experience is more likely to be covered by health insurance, though the percentage of how much it's covered varies as do deductibles, right? If you have a high deductible versus a low deductible, if you you know, we're having a baby in February. And so your deductible is starting over. There's a lot of considerations here. However, um, according to a study by the university of Michigan in 2015, the average cost of an out of pocket, like average cost out of pocket, um, of childbirth with insurance was $4,569. 
This study is linked in the show notes. And according, additionally, according to a childbirth cost per state guide that's hosted by Policy Scout, which is a health insurance guide website, the average vaginal hospital birth with insurance, this is giving birth vaginally in a hospital with insurance in Colorado, where I live, is over $7,400. And a C-section with insurance out-of-pocket co- out costs will be over 10000 This also does not include prenatal testing fees, which are sometimes covered by insurance, other times they're not, um, nor does this take into account, right, if your like, deductible starts over midway through the pregnancy, something like that. So it can still be incredibly cost costly to give birth inside a hospital with insurance. Now, we're going to switch over to mid Wifery care inside a birth center. And there are two types of birth centers. There's a freestanding birth center and a hospital attached birth center. We'll talk about the differences between the two. Um, so certified nurse midwives, which we have talked about already or midwives, um, can practice in birth centers. And oftentimes you will see them in a birth center, especially if it's a birth center that is attached to a hospital, it's more likely to have that certified nurse midwife that we already talked about as the care provider. If you, uh, other birth centers might have certified professional midwives or a certified midwife, a CM or a CPM, it will vary based on the birth center. We've already spoken about the CNM. So I want to briefly just talk about certified midwives and certified professional professional midwives. So certified midwives or CMs are found in some States, and it's a certification that started about 30 years ago to allow more midwifery access. These midwives will typically have a, or will have a bachelor in a related degree, a bachelor's degree in a related degree, and then graduate in midwifery a graduate in midwifery and they typically practice in a hospital or a birth center and will come to birth with a bit more of a medical approach. So that's a certified midwife, a CM. Now a CPM or a certified professional midwife will receive their training from a midwifery school that's accredited by the Midwifery Education Accreditation Council. They also must work as an apprentice. They are then licensed by a registry of midwives, and the CPM license is the only midwifery education program that requires an out-of-hospital experience. CPMs often practice home birth or work in birth centers, and they tend to have a less is more approach when it comes to interfering with the natural process of birth. While they're prepared to deal with emergencies like excessive bleeding and know how to resuscitate babies, or, and they carry antibiotics and medications to help with hemorrhage or they carry oxygen, et cetera. They're mostly there at a birth to make sure that everything is going normally. CPMs are only licensed to practice at this time in 28 states, and some states place limitations on what is allowed in their licensure. For example, whether or not they can support the birth of twins outside of a hospital, et cetera. Um, Overall, their philosophy tends to be that birth works best when it's left undisturbed, and they tend to be supportive of a client's choice when it comes to declining any prenatal care. Often women choose a birth center to get the best of both worlds. Uh, the midwife I trained with when I did my birth, uh, when I did my birth doula training, like 
really claimed that it was the worst of both worlds. And, you know, you're not getting the, what if something goes terribly wrong hospital benefit, if you're doing a freestanding birth center, for example, but you're still having to leave your house, drive in, you know, the inconvenience of leaving the house, things like that. Um, a friend of mine was telling me she decided to give birth in a birth center and that her husband was so worried about when they would leave their home, you know, and then what they were going to do with the dogs and how to just like pack up the house. And like, he was so concerned with all of that, that he like, couldn't really focus on her, on rubbing her on provide, you know, and giving her support and care. And so I personally think that birth centers can be in between. Like, I think that they, in some ways do not offer the reassurance of the hospital, but you still have to leave home, which is super annoying sometimes. But also I do think for a lot of people, it can provide a safe environment that feels way more like comfy and homey and beautiful than in a hospital. And, you know, some of the providers there, depending on the birth center you're at and what type of provider is present, you know, might encourage you or support you in your decisions more. Um, but I also, I, yeah, so I have different opinions about it, but so just not bringing my opinions in, just speaking to the facts, freestanding birth centers are facilities that are not attached to a hospital and they stand alone. And they usually have a relationship with hospitals in case of a transfer and freestanding birth centers usually focus on a low risk pregnancy. So if you had a high risk pregnancy, you wouldn't be able to typically birth at a freestanding birth center. Um, as we've talked about these types of midwives that most commonly practice in a birth center, a CPM or a CM in these, uh, freestanding birth centers, they usually do practice in a less invasive way than certified nurse midwives and are trained in hands-off techniques around philosophical, physiological birth and freestanding birth centers will not offer narcotics or epidurals, but typically will have things like birthing tubs and will be a nice, you know, romantic environment a lot of times. However, a hospital-based birth center that is located inside or attached to a hospital is usually staffed by those certified nurse midwives. And it is a type of birth center that is run by a hospital. It's reasonable to expect that you'll be treated similarly than you, as you would be in a hospital, though your room might have more amenities. For example, it might have a tub, et cetera. Typically for both of these types of birth centers, the type of care that you're going to receive during your pregnancy before birth will be somewhere in between the seven minutes you get with an OBGYN and the 45 minutes to an hour that you would typically get with a home birth midwife. It really just depends on the facility. Freestanding birth centers are more likely to provide that more long comprehensive prenatal appointments than a hospital-based birth center. But both of these birth centers will likely have large staffs and you will switch between the practitioners, seeing different practitioners while receiving care during pregnancy. And if you give birth in a hospital-based birth center, you might also be cared for in addition to the midwives by nurses, which would limit how much time you actually spend with the midwife who's attending on the day of. So overall takeaways for some of the birth center care is the providers are more likely to know that you're in charge. than if you're working with an OB who seems to think that they're in charge, you might have longer appointments. You may or may not see fewer providers depending on the care provider model that they're choosing. You likely will still have lots of prenatal testing as the standard, and you may or may not push face pushback for declining tests or asking for alternatives. 
still, there's no way to know who will attend your birth. Um, and you're most, this is more likely to be covered by health insurance. So the average out of pocket cost is still between four to $8,000 on average. So we've covered giving birth in a hospital with an OBGYN or a certified nurse midwife. We've covered the two different types of birth centers with either a CPM, CNM, or a CM, certified midwife. And now we're going to talk about home birth midwives. So giving birth at home with a midwife. And there are lots of different types of home birth midwives across the world. Often in the United States, these types of midwives are certified professional midwives, those certified nurse midwives, a certified midwife, all of which we've talked about already, or a traditional midwife. That is the one we haven't talked about yet. And we will in just a second. And these traditional midwives have either typically given up a license or never had one. So like this, you might have a traditional midwife who used to practice as a certified professional midwife, but felt like the limitations of the license were inhibiting their ability to serve the women in the way that they wanted to. For example, in Colorado, a certified professional midwife is not legally allowed to attend a breech birth at home. However, if you're not licensed, there aren't legal bindings to you about attending a birth at home. And so some of these women may have chosen to give up their license, or maybe they've never had one. Traditional midwives are typically pretty hard to find since they don't usually want a lot of attention. They, their philosophy is usually that they can serve women better outside of the system because they have less limitations and they have a range of training. Some of them might have been trained in a hospital, like as a CNM in a traditional setting, some of them might have apprenticed for a long time, or some of them might have had no formal training. Um, but you could get someone who's had no training, but had been attending births for over 40 years, or find someone who, you know, was trained in a hospital setting and gave up her licensure. So the philosophy is very similar to that of a certified professional midwife, but it's a little bit more traditional in nature, right? You know, like really feeling like they have full ability to support women at home, no matter the circumstance. With all home birth midwives, Typically, you will see a 45 to 60 minute appointment time during your prenatal care, either in their office, your home, or a mix of both. And might, their office might be their home. Uh, providers typically consider themselves guides and safety guards, but know that you are in charge and appoint you to take responsibility for your birth in a home birth setting. In a home birth setting, uh, a midwife will often take an active role in your prenatal care. And this might include recommending herbals or recommendations for your diet or your, for your exercise, health, et cetera. They're much more holistically focused. Typically, they are respectful of you declining tests or wanting to do an alternative. And usually it will be the same one of the couple midwives that you see for your entire pregnancy at birth. So, like, for example, the midwife that I'm working with, 
unless, you know, there is, and this has never happened to her, but unless, you know, there is a crazy reason why she could not attend my birth, she does have a backup midwife, but she will be the person attending my birth. Sometimes you will work with a midwifery practice where there will be two midwives and like, you know, you see both of them and it might be whoever's on call that time, but it's a lot more continuity of care. Typically it's, they are, they're not big practices and home birth midwifery practices, typically not more than two. Um, after birth, a midwifery, a home birth midwife will typically stay around, um, for a few hours to make sure you are fed, that the house is clean and that everyone is healthy. They typically then will also come back 24 hours later or two days later, um, to check on how you are doing. And one of the biggest differences with this style of care really is the postpartum care. Typically in a home birth setting, several, there will be several appointments after the birth where your midwife comes to your home, you know, a few days after a week after a couple weeks after with a six week appointment, also being either in their office or in your home. And, uh, that type of care is not really present at all in either of the two other settings that we talked about the birth center or the OBGYN or midwife at a hospital setting. Typically there's like no very little or no postpartum care afterwards. Um, also, oftentimes midwives will provide newborn care. So you don't have to leave your home to go to a pediatrician after a couple of days. And although home birth is typically not covered by insurance, it can range from about three to $10,000. Um, it is oftentimes still less costly than giving birth in a hospital with insurance. I have a client who switched to home birth about a third of the way into her time being pregnant. And she, she did the math and she ended up saving significantly more money than she would have by in, like by choosing home birth than she would have by going to a hospital. So, um, it can be, you know, less costly overall. And it's typically a global fee that you either pay upfront for all of the prenatal care, birth and postpartum care. And there, additionally, you can use health sharing plans like crowd health, which is actually what I've been utilizing for healthcare. And it has been amazing. Um, and it does, you know, support home birth. And I'll share some um, information about that in the show notes because I'm obsessed with it. Or there are like Christian health sharing plans that will oftentimes cover home birth. So you do have other options um, outside of insurance for support with coverage. And for home births, I just want to say, you know, we've talked about the different kinds of care providers who might be present at a home birth, but for home birth, you also have the option to birth unassisted or to what's sometimes called free birth. And this would be with either you and your partner alone or with a doula or friends. And you can choose to seek other care for prenatal or not, those who free birth choose to take more responsibility for their birth and focus a lot on lifestyle during pregnancy to ensure a healthy birth and pregnancy. I personally know several women who have done this and believe it's a really beautiful way to birth, but it's not necessarily for everyone. Um, so yeah, those are your birthing provider options. OBGYN, CNM, CPM, CM, traditional midwife or no one having just yourself and your options are really, you know, home birth, 
a birth center, either freestanding and, or one that's attached to a hospital or giving birth in a hospital. So now that you've learned about all of the different types of providers and the locations to give birth and what that means and entails for each, you might have an idea of which environment and provider will match how you want to feel, but never guess. And so it's really important to interview several different providers and ask them questions to get a better idea of what their birth philosophy looks like and to know more about what your experience in their care will look like. Here are some preliminary questions. I personally recommend all of my clients who are unsure about the type of care that they want interview different types of providers and only make a decision after they've met with all of them. So that could mean if you have no idea what kind of care you want, interview an OBGYN, interview a CNM, interview someone who's going to work at a birth center and interview a home birth midwife. And after meeting with all of them, make a decision about what feels best to you. Um, it's important to also remember that it is never too late to switch providers. The United States has some of the worst outcomes for mothers in the develop in the Western developed world. And you ensuring that you're in a mother friendly setting is critical, no matter your, whatever stage you're at in your pregnancy. So if you get a bad feeling about your care provider, or the location that you're giving birth when you're 35 weeks pregnant, it is okay to make that shift to make that change. So some questions that you might want to ask. The first one is what happens during a normal labor and birth in your setting? See what they say. What things do you normally do to a woman in labor? What happens if I go past my due date? Pro tip, look for, look out for any provider that uses that word allow to tell you about their view of the relationship in this question and others. For example, we allow you to go to 41 weeks is like a big red flag. Um, and just remember that you can actually do whatever you want. You cannot show up to a scheduled induction if you don't want to. They can't allow you not to do anything. But if they, you know, when you ask what happens if I go past my due date and they say, well, we would allow you to go to 42 weeks or whatever, that's like kind of a red flag to use that language. Uh, in terms of it being a mother-friendly setting. Uh, another good question is what tests and screenings do you recommend? What if I don't want to do them? What do you think about birth plans? Typically, we want to be wary of providers who dismiss birth plans or doulas for that matter. Ask about their C-section rate um, or the World Health Organization says that over 20% is doing more harm than good. And the average hospital in the United States is over 33%. So ask for their C-section rate as a provider and also that of the hospital that they work in. If you're you know, interviewing a hospital midwife or OBGYN and ask for a hospital transfer rate and reasons for hospital transfers in a midwifery practice that's at a birth center or at home. Another question that you might want to ask is what is the procedure if there are complications in my pregnancy? What is your protocol for postpartum care? And what can I expect at my prenatal visits? Now, for each of these questions, you should know either what answer you're looking for or you know, like that will ensure that you have the ideal care that you want. Or if you don't know yet, sit with how the answers make you feel. I really recommend recording the conversations so that you can play them again later and sit with it. Um, you know, just check if you're in a state that requires both parties consent for recording. If you do make sure you ask for it, et cetera. Overall, it is, and it's also like, would be pretty unusual if a care provider didn't want you recording a conversation. 
Um, overall, it's just so important to go with your gut instinct when it comes to a care provider. And as I mentioned earlier, if you are not pregnant, this is the best time to start thinking about this and to learn more. You won't feel rushed if you take the time to dive deeper now. And this is a preliminary list when it comes to question. I really re- questions. I really recommend uh, reading Ina May's Guide to Childbirth and Birth Without Fear to help get clarity on the birth experiences you want and how to most likely facilitate that experience. Also, my amazing midwife, Geneva Montano, wrote a book on baby-led birthing that I highly recommend called Wisdom from the Womb that can also give you a lot of perspective, similar to the name of our podcast. So one more thing we're going to do in this podcast um, is talk about the different types of prenatal testing and why you might choose to do them or opt out of them. Um, This is a pretty general overview. And you know, I encourage you again, this is not medical advice. This is information for you to do more research and take responsibility for your own care. So the first one is carrier screenings for conditions that could be genetic disorders. For example, like sickle cell anemia, the BRCA gene, Tay-Sachs, et cetera. This can be done before or any time during pregnancy. You can do this like years before you ever decide if you even want to get pregnant. Um, this is something that Danny and I did years before having kids, since both of us are Ashkenazi Jewish of lineage, and there's a higher risk of certain conditions. You know, what are the risks of this test? There can be false positives with these screenings, um, and it can also miss certain birth defects, but the benefits are that you can determine if you and your part or your partner is a carrier for a certain genetic disease, and it can give you options like doing in vitro fertilization for testing embryos so that you might not pass on those conditions. Uh, Blood tests that are typically recommended in prenatal care in the first trimester, there's like a standard prenatal blood panel. And then you can also do blood tests on top of that, like testing your vitamin levels, thyroid levels, STDs, et cetera. And why you might want to do this. Like if there's you know, what are the benefits of doing this kind of test? It's really, uh, to give you information about, you know, what's going on in your body. Like I, I typically will see, uh, with thyroid and early pregnancy, like women who didn't have a history of thyroid issues, sometimes the HCG levels can really spark your thyroid to be overactive and this could influence the pregnancy. So the benefit is it gives you some options, right? It gives you like the ability to either take thyroid medication or manage your thyroid differently. It gives you options to take different vitamins or to treat your pregnancy differently. There might be a risk though, of risking out of the type of care that you receive. If you are considered, you know, more high risk because of that, and you wanted to do a different type of care. The next test we're going to talk about is an early pregnancy ultrasound. And this typically happens between six to 10 weeks and is done with an ultrasound probe in the vagina. And the benefits of this is it makes it, it's the most accurate way to see how far along you are and can confirm the viability of a pregnancy by seeing the heartbeat. What might be the risks? Well, studies show that there are unknown effects um, to ultrasounds and that caution should be applied to early ultrasounds, especially as this is the time when the most of the development is happening. For example, one study on mice showed that mice were exposed that were exposed to ultrasounds in utero were less social and more overactive in social settings relative to mice in the control group. 
And the heating effect of the sonar devices can impact some of the baby's organs and they have a cumulative effect, meaning the more you do, the more risk there seems to be. If you want more info on ultrasounds and the benefits and risks that they pose, we've attached two articles in the show notes from midwifery today. One of them is titled ultrasound weighing the propaganda against the facts by Beverly beach. And the other is called prenatal ultrasound does not improve perinatal conditions by Judy Cohen. So highly recommend reading those articles and just getting more informed so that you can make a decision about whether early ultrasounds are good for you and your baby. Uh, the next test we're going to talk about is called the NIPT test, which is a cell-free DNA test. And it happens at about nine to 10 weeks, though you can do it later. It is used to test for chromosomal issues like Down syndrome or other conditions like that. It can also tell you the sex of the baby. There are very few risks of this procedure, though there is a 1% chance of a false positive or it missing an issue. And it is often pricey, about $800 to $2,000. And depending on your age and history, your insurance might not cover it. The benefits to this testing would obviously be a non-invasive way to find out the sex of your baby and also to see if you know there were any conditions that would maybe influence your decision around the pregnancy. There are other options for testing chromosomal or abnormalities or other defects. These include a CVS sampling, which can be done at 10 to 12 weeks, which takes a sample of the placenta. This is usually only offered to high risk pregnant people. And the benefit is, is it can be done earlier than some other tests other than the NIPT, but carries a slightly higher risk of infection or pregnancy loss. There's also something called the integrated screening, which can happen from around 10 to 13 weeks. And it's a combo of blood tests and an ultrasound. The benefit to this test is it can detect down syndrome, trisomy 18 and neural tube defects with less risks than more invasive tests like the CVS or an amnio, but there are risks of false positives, um, as well as the risk of an early ultrasound. And the last one we'll talk about with, as it relates to this is the amnio, where a sampling of the amniotic fluid is taken with a hollow needle that is inserted into the uterus. Usually it's only offered to high-risk clients and it's 99% effective at detecting birth defects like Down syndrome, cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs, and other, um, other issues. There is a risk of pregnancy loss. It's less than 1%, but there is a risk or a risk of injury to the baby infection. It can cause preterm labor and other potential issues, but it is 99% effective. Next we have, as far as prenatal testing that you can do is an anatomy scan, which happens between 18 to 22 weeks. It is an ultrasound that gives a look into the fetal anatomy to make sure everything is developing the way that it should. There is still the risk of doing an ultrasound, much of which is unknown and medical guidelines are to caution against too much exposure, but there is also, you know, the risk of something not looking right and being able to be seen. And that impacts the way that your care looks. I know a woman whose sister-in-law went for her anatomy scan and they weren't able to see the second kidney on the baby. And so over the next 10 weeks, she's getting an ultrasound every week to see if they can monitor it differently. So it's increasing the amount of ultrasounds that she has. Also it's the doctors have started sharing with her that, you know, they could, 
induce her or have an emergency C-section and have an early, very early baby who then lives in the NICU for a couple of months so that they can monitor him. Whereas, you know, there are probably a lot of people who are born with one kidney and who never knew. And so, you know, it really just does potentially risk and influence a type of care that you end up having. It's also very possible that they'll find his other kidney on this next ultrasound or something like that. Um, so that is one of the risks of the anatomy scan. Some of the benefits will be, you know, getting a reassurance, although ultrasounds are not always accurate and they can, they do have limitations and they can miss things like a hole in the heart, et cetera, but feeling more confident about, you know, the health of your baby. Uh, the next test we're going to talk about is the glucose tolerance test, which is like trending. Um, this test typically happens at 26 to 28 weeks, and it is a blood test to see how your blood sugar looks one hour after ingesting 50 grams of glucose to test for gestational diabetes. The benefits of this are being able to address gestational diabetes if you have it, which can cause large babies and other, you know, possible negative income outcomes that could impact your birth experience. Um, the risk varies depending on how you do this test. If you use the standard glucose drink that will be in most labs or doctor's offices, the risks are stronger as the drink itself is known to have known carcinogens, which are cancer causing uh, ingredients, artificial coloring and other toxic substances in it. But you can replace that drink with an alternative. You can ingest 50 grams of glucose in a lot of different ways. So, you know, the rest, the risks are less if you opt out of doing that drink and you do it another way. You can also risk having a false positive, especially if you didn't eat a full meal ahead of time. And then that can also risk you out of some types of care. If you have gestational diabetes, depending on what state you live in, it might determine that you may need to give birth in a hospital if you wanted to birth somewhere else. Um, not to mention that a lot of women end up feeling pretty sick uh, to their stomach after ingesting that much glucose. And the last one we're going to talk about is the GBS test, which stands for group beta strep. And what it is, it's a vaginal swab testing your vagina for this type of bacteria. And knowing this, um, is a negative, like it, knowing that you do not have GBS could benefit you, uh, to not have to use antibiotics during labor. If you are birthing at a hospital or a birth center, since most facilities will treat you as if you have a positive status, if your status is unknown, if you don't want antibiotics during birth, there is also a risk of testing. Um, you know, because if they do know, then they, and it comes back positive, then you haven't, you know, then you need the antibiotics. There is a, there are ways to change your GBS status. A lot of times I do this work with women using probiotics and making sure they're eating lots of fermented food. So we can definitely influence the the biome of your vagina. Um, just a reminder that all of these tests, you know, you can choose to, to build your own adventure with, and, you know, this is where this, this podcast in this conversation is going to get personal because I always get questions about this and I'm happy to share my choices about all of the above, you know, what kind of provider and location we're choosing, what testing we're choosing to do, which tests we're opting out of and why. And a reminder that before I share that my birth and pregnancy is not yours, but hopefully it can help you as an example of how I came to the decisions I made 
not just what decisions I made. You know, I'm not sharing them in hopes that you copy and paste my birth plan or my philosophy around birth or what tests I want to do, but more just to talk about how I came to this decision about what was right for me and my body and my baby in hopes that it gives you some perspective on how you can make decisions about what's right for your baby and your body when it comes to doing testing based on your, you know, background and age and lifestyle and comfort level, you know, et cetera. So, um, yeah, let's jump in a little bit about my experience in my story. So from the time I was about 12, literally 12 years old, I knew that I wanted to give birth out of a hospital. And I remember going to visit someone with my mom who had had a baby. And after we left the hospital, I just had this gut feeling that that was not for me. And I said it out loud to my mom at the time who gave me like a scoff, you know, like, yeah, right. You're going to want the epidural. (laughs) And as someone who experiences personally more fear of needles than of pain, I just knew she was wrong. Um, But as I got older, it always remained a no-brainer for me. Like hospitals were for sick people and pregnant people aren't sick. So why would I go to a hospital to give birth? For me personally, the hospital is not a place where I feel safe. I went, you know, to the hospital several times when I was young because I had lots of digestive issues and I had a lot of pain or kidney. I had a kidney infection, like hospitals, the smell of them, the lights, the, the environment, it's not a safe feeling environment for me. It's like something is very wrong if I am here. And that is not something that I feel or thought I would feel, you know, even at a young age about having a baby. And so I had had these conversations with my partner over the years. So he was totally on board. And by the time that we were pregnant with our first baby, there was no question that we would be pursuing a home birth. And I had been interested in the free birth movement or unassisted birthing, as we had talked about it earlier, and I'm not ruling it out for a future child, but he especially wanted someone else who was experienced to be there for the first time. And I also believe that through much of history, birth was an event where there were wise elder women present who had been through this before. And even if it's just to hold space for this birth and to give me a massage and then bring me broth in bed after the baby is born, I would welcome that for my first time going through this transformation. Though I also like would be equally as excited about these, you know, a doula and a midwife, just like being there and present with me and, you know, cheering me on and reassuring me that things are going well, because this is my first time doing this experience myself, even if I've witnessed it with others. Um, and that is just one thing I should mention because I think it really frames my perspective for this. And this is my perspective. It doesn't have to be yours, but I do not view birth as an inherently medical event. I view it as a rite of passage and a transformation from maiden to mother that connects me with every other woman who's had this experience and also connects me with my ancestors that without them having this experience, I wouldn't be here. And I also don't fear fear birth for that same reason, because I must come from a line of great birthers, right? Recognizing that until a hundred years ago, it was the norm for babies to be born at home. And that means that the women in my family line, my generational line have been birthing for thousands of years up until, you know, a hundred years ago, relatively unassisted. And in that belief, I think that the less we interfere, the less likely something is to go wrong. 
That said, I'm also really grateful for all the interventions we have, if only they were used when they were needed and not, you know, overused. I would also not hesitate to utilize an intervention if I felt that my or my baby's life were truly in danger. But I know that being in a hospital or even a birth center makes me our lives being in danger, more likely to happen. So I will not put myself in that situation knowingly. And I'll talk about that more in a future episode because this one's already getting really long, but like what the cascade of interventions means and like why that might be the situation that you could potentially be creating an emergency by being in a hospital. And so for all of these reasons, we actively sought out a home birth midwife. Um, We knew that when we were moving to Colorado, excuse me, we knew that we were moving to Colorado. And so I hired a midwife in Colorado while I was still living in Atlanta. And I did one virtual appointment with her before we arrived. Um, and now I see her in person now that we are living in Denver. And another reason we chose to go with a certified professional midwife for a home birth is to not feel pressured around certain tests. And so I'll talk a little bit and speak to the test that my partner and I chose to do for our experience. Um, we chose to do a NIPT test, which is that cell-free DNA blood test along with the normal prenatal blood work. And we also tested my thyroid. My family has a long history of thyroid issues with most of the women in my family presenting as hypothyroid. So I wanted to make sure that the baby wouldn't be impacted by the thyroid levels being wonky. Um, and so we tested my thyroid at about six weeks pregnancy for that. And it was all good. And if it would, if it would have been stressed, you know, it often would have showed up by then, um, as the pregnancy hormone HCG impacts that. And I was fine doing the initial prenatal blood work because I felt like if anything were to go wrong in the future in the pregnancy, I, and we needed to do more blood work, then I would like to know what my baseline was when I started instead of not having a reference point for that. So I felt comfortable doing both of those blood works. Um, The standard is if your thyroid looks good in first trimester, that like you don't necessarily need to continue testing. If I was experiencing symptoms that made me think I needed to test again, I would, but so far I have not needed to do that. Uh, Since we decided to opt out of early ultrasounds um, for reasons that I shared above about them, there being unknown risks to the potential baby um, or unknown potential risks to the baby. And for other reasons, like me desiring to feel more into trust and communicating with my baby and making sure that they were okay that way, we decided to do the NIPT in order to get the baby sex um, because you know, otherwise without doing an early ultrasound, it would have been more challenging to find out his sex. And this was really important for Danny. I would have actually been really excited to find out the sex on the day of the birth. Um, but my partner felt like he really needed to know and his need to know was stronger than my desire to not know. So we ended up doing it. And Although, and even though I don't feel like my age, which is 29, um, you know, like I am technically not in a high risk category, um, for those chromosomal abnormalities, I do have a family history of some chromosomal abnormalities and it was a low intervention way. The NIPT was remember, it's just a blood test to make sure that baby was super healthy on paper. And so, 
we decided to, you know, utilize the NIPT for the sex and also for that, recognizing I had a history there. And he was um, healthy on paper and healthy in reality. And so the we didn't need to do any of the other testing as well. It was unnecessary. As far as the anatomy scan goes, I went back and forth on this for a while for me. Um, if we were going to do one, like an ultrasound, the intention would be that it would only be one ultrasound and it would be this one during pregnancy. I personally know through experience and stories and anecdotes and all the things that ultrasounds are pretty consistent in being inaccurate with a lot of things. Um, you know, whether that's sizing or whether that's, um, just a lot of things like positioning, et cetera, but we decided to do it because I thought it would be really fun to see the baby for me. And also for my partner, since he doesn't get to feel him in the way that I do. And in the end, I'm really happy that we did it. Um, it was a pretty cool experience getting to see him like that. And it was fun to learn. He was in the 62nd percentile for size. All I know, even though I know it's just a guesstimate and it can change, but, and of course it was fun to hear everything looks good. Like, you know, and since this was the only ultrasound we planned to do, I feel pretty good about this decision. I'm still not sure I needed it, but I'm really happy that we did it. And it was really fun to get to see him. And I like really enjoyed that experience. I do plan to opt out of the glucose testing, um, but I'm going to do the GBS, that group beta stress vaginal swab test, just in case something happens. And I do end up transferring to a hospital because I don't want to be unnecessarily exposed to antibiotics. If I can avoid it, it's not worth it for me to, you know, refuse that test on a principal basis. If it, you know, the antibiotics can interfere with my baby's microbiome. And, um, so I'm comfortable doing that test, but I do plan to opt out of the glucose testing because I feel really good about my diet and my blood sugar management. And I don't feel like eating 50 grams of glucose and stress testing my system is a great idea. Um, I am going to do another podcast in the future to about how to talk about your decisions, uh, that you decide to make around birth to family or friends, especially when they don't see things the same way. But for now, just know that you are the birther and that you are responsible for being the voice for how your baby wants to come into this world. Like you are the advocate for how your baby wants to be birthed and you deserve to have the type of care that makes you feel like a confident queen capable of growing and birthing your baby, just like so many of your ancestors did. And since moving to Colorado, I've connected and become friends with women of a similar mindset to me. And it has been so wonderful and so healing. And if you're interested in birthing in a way that is different, whatever that is, maybe like all your friends are really into home birth and you want to be in a hospital or vice versa, right? A lot, like I really encourage you to seek, like if you want to birth in a different way than a lot of the people around you have had experiences with, I encourage you to seek out others online and in person and ask questions, get curious. You know, there are so many online spaces for that. You can also find like breastfeeding groups that you can go to before you have a baby while you're pregnant. Um, and that you'll be able to find like lots of different, you know, avenues there for people who birth differently, uh, lots of books that can also just like really make you feel more normalized and connected. And no, I am always here as a resource. Speaking of community, 
and feeling nourished by being in a space of women that share a mindset and philosophy feels so good. I'm excited to announce that the waitlist for the Well Woman Collective is officially open. The Well Woman Collective is my signature group coaching program that has led over 85 women to optimal holistic wellness, to their most fertile bodies, and to living a life in flow with their cycle and falling in love with their bodies through health. This community, this sisterhood, that that aspect of the program is so divine with many of these women having ended up becoming friends, clients of each other, each other's biggest cheerleaders. So if you are ready to learn to trust your body, heal your hormones, feel better than you ever have and build a sustainable, holistic diet and lifestyle habits for life in sisterhood, well, woman, the well woman collective is your community. It is your place. There's a link to sign up for the wait list in the show notes. This will give you access to amazing bonuses, amazing discounts. Um, highly recommend we are going to start enrollment in February. And so please, please, please don't hesitate to get on that wait list. It is a no commitment way to just really get access to the best that this program has to offer early before it releases to the public. So I hope that you got a lot out of this very in-depth episode today, a reminder that you are capable of making the best decision for your body and your baby. I am always here as a resource. Keep the conversation going, get curious, whether you're 30 weeks pregnant or three years away from getting pregnant, get curious And thanks for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. Please give us a rating and a review in Apple podcasts or on Spotify or on Google or wherever you listen. This really helps get this information into the hands of more women. And I deeply, deeply appreciate it. Thank you.